Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Survival by Degrees, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the climate crisis and what tackling it really entails. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Ana Luisa Lepold. She has her PhD in Applied Ethics from Rua University at Bochum. Her book is Climate Change and Individual Moral Duties, a plea for the promotion of a collective solution. Ana Luisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me today. So to open up with a question that you ask in your book, what should individuals do to supplement the global fight against climate change? Well, you, you're starting with the smallest question firstly. Um, I'll try to give some background information first um, before I uh, try to um, try to give you an answer properly. Um, I assume that the two of us and also many of the listeners have a very common intuition that we should all do our bit and reduce our bit to the global fight against climate change and you know reduce our personal carbon footprint by refraining from certain individual actions such as flying or eating dairies or meat so this is typically the normative advice that is given to us as individual agents but looking into the philosophical debate of the past 15 years it's not that clear that changing our individual behavior is our primary moral duty. So when I started my research back in 2016, like five years ago, um, I wondered why philosophy has such a hard time providing straightforward argumentations while we as individuals and citizens have such a clear moral intuition. So I told myself um, when I started my research to actually accept that challenge and um, to provide a straightforward argumentation. But as often in academia, my research actually led me to a different conclusion than the one that I was expecting. Um, Because one of the key theoretical problems that I've come across um, is that climate change is actually a collective problem and not an individual problem. So a collective problem that is caused by innumerable day-to-day actions of almost 8 billion people. So none of these individual actions are in itself sufficient or necessary to either cause climate change or to stop climate change on the other hand. So what we actually need is not individual action, but collective action and collective action in all sectors. So instead of arguing for a moral duty to refrain from certain actions, I argue in my book for an individual duty to promote collective action in all sectors. So my book is basically a a challenge to our common intuition. And um, still, I I don't leave individuals off the hook when it comes to climate responsibility and climate duties. So on the contrary, um, I actually ask of all of us a lot more than we assume to have right now. And if I may, Lee, I'm I'm not sure if, if I've still got time for that, but I would really love to share a thought experiment with you because I I feel it makes it a lot clearer. I would love to hear that. 
Um, and that thought experiment is actually by Elizabeth Cripps. So I'm not taking credits for things <laughs> I haven't uh, developed, but I feel that this thought experiment is making things a lot clearer. Um, so her Cripps um, basic assumption is that um, um, obviously climate change is very serious and cl that climate-induced harm is very serious on the one hand, but that on the other hand, there are 8 billion people and um, all of those uh, people um, contribute to climate change in innumerable day-to-day -day actions. So her thought experiment goes in the following way. Imagine a lake and um, in the middle of that lake, um, there is a person swimming and that person is, is fine. She's living, she's alive, she's fine. Suddenly there is a group of people um, and th these people don't know each other one by one. Um, they are all there on, on an individual basis. And um, all of them individually start to uh, jump into the water and they start swimming and splashing. So far, so good. But gradually, turbulences occur in the water. So um, these these turbulences um, get that intense, after all, that the person in the middle of the lake starts drowning. But it's the, the point is, the problem is that not the individual jumping um, into the water is enough to cause the, people, the person drowning, but um, the person is about to die. But the individual action is not, um, not enough to, to, to actually drown the person, right? So um, now imagine further that you and I are among those people um, who cause turbulences and you notice the drowning person. So what can you do? You've got um, three options, actually. The first is you swim up to that person and pull her out of the water, save her life, and then you go back into the water yourself. This is what Cripps called a so-called direct duty. The second choice that you can make is um, actually leave the water and go home. That's the so-called mitigating duty. So you would mitigate what all of us would actually have to do. And then there is a third option. You raise your my awareness because I'm, I'm swimming next to you and we together raise awareness of all others um, jumping into the water. Um, but we do not stop there, but we ask, for example, the municipality to uh, position signs and um, we claim that there should be a lifeguard watching the lake, stuff like that. So what we do is create collective action and collective action that actually has a sustainable effect. And that's what Cripps calls promotional duty. And I've picked up her, um, her, her uh, terminology there and developed that further. So I want to dig into Crip's approach a little bit more, but as you were talking about this, it actually made me think that this approach to climate change is very similar to uh, how we should have approached, or I guess should still approach uh, COVID. When you were doing your research or after you were done with it, uh, did you find any similarities between uh our individual actions and the collective action uh, that we should take with climate change and then the individual action, collective action that needs to be taken uh, against COVID? Well, I totally agree that there are obviously similarities, but um, 
I often get this question with regards to um, global uh, poverty, if um, this argument can actually be translated to global poverty. And I don't believe that we should do this in the first place. We should, uh, what I try to do is provide a, a straightforward argumentation for climate change. And I believe that this is a huge, this has been a huge task. So before answering with either regard to um, uh, global poverty or uh, COVID, um, I, would, I, I wouldn't want to give a straight answer to that, but um, more or less um, with any collective action problem that is not solved on the collective level, we can't, we as individual agents can't assume that we don't have a, a moral responsibility or a moral duty to act, but we, have the duty to actually push collective action. Yes. So uh, getting back to Crips then, uh, I had another question about these three-week collectivities that she talks about. Uh, can you just tell us what are the three-week collectivities who have a moral duty to act on climate change and then what are those duties exactly? Yeah, sure. Um, well, Cripps theory, as I um, already said, is the basis of my book. And much of what I um, um, said in the beginning are um, her either the views, her views that I share with her, or views that I supplemented in the course of my book. Um, so, two um, two of her central findings are that. Um, um, collective action is required and um, that we need an effective solution. And the second finding is that there is no collectivity that is actually prepared to um, perform sufficient collective action. And as a way out, she um, makes a case for so-called weak collectivities that are basically collectivities that would have a moral duty to act collectively if they were performed in a way that constitutes them as a collectivity already. Um, according to Cripps, and then here I come to your question, according to Cripps, there are three weak collectivities. It's um, for her, it's the polluters. So all people who emit carbon above a morally relevant threshold. The second uh, weak collectivity is um, the able. Um, all people who are actually able and to, in her sense, mainly financially able to do something about climate change. And the third collectivity is the young. So all young generations around the world. So um, as none of these weak collectivities is actually able to fulfill their duty as a collectivity yet, um, the duty falls basically back to the individual level as a promotional duty to promote that collective action that would actually be needed. And what I did in my book is that I interlinked her theory with the rights-based approach of Alan Goworth um, uh, and developed her theory a lot further. So, for example, I argued that um, the able are not only the financially able, but all those people who have any ability to do something about climate change. And to me, that also involves academics of all disciplines to actually focus their energy on providing profoundly new ways of thinking and um, acting that go way beyond those ways that we have today. And um, 
Also, the second example is that I've also made a very strong case for young parents as members of the young to live up to their parental duty to raise their children within a, um, or with a sense of climate awareness. And also next to that, to those theoretical questions, I claim that I will provide practical advice in my book. Um, so one of the issues um, uh, where I did that is uh, in providing moral orientation with regard to political questions, um, the need to be made on the way towards zero, zero um, net zero emissions. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about the narrative uh, surrounding climate change. I mean, you mentioned it's up to parents as well to teach their children the right thing to do here. Why do you think the narrative or the messaging that we're using about climate change right now is wrong? Yeah. Um, well, I guess we need to differentiate between the narrative about climate change and the moral narrative about individual climate duties, right? But um, I guess the very short answer to both of them is um, that they both fail to enhance the effect that we require to tackle climate change effectively. But maybe to provide you a, a slightly longer answer, it's um, like the scientific consensus about climate change has never been clearer than today. It's very clear, but the problem is that researchers mostly limit themselves to actually presenting facts about climate change. And though I've, I, as a philosopher, um, I find this very sympathetic. I'm, I, I love rationality and I love logic, sorry. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. And at, at the end of the day, facts are of utmost importance and they are the only thing that matters. But um, the problem was with facts is that they only really work once they are embedded into more narr narratives that work. That's a point that David Fenton, a climate communication specialist, actually brought up. So when it comes to the narrative about individual moral duties with regard to climate change, we as individuals and citizens are actually told um, um, that we ought refrain from carbon intensive actions, right? That's what I said in the beginning. So uh, typical suggestions that we probably receive is, um, um, are, or they are mostly stimulated uh, by some catchy slogan of the style like going green is easy, every bit counts, plant a tree, get air for free, stuff like that. I'm sure we all know them. So this is what I call the dominant moral narrative of individual moral duties. And the result is highly problematic in many, many ways. One of these ways is um, maybe the following. Like we in Germany, we had a very rainy summer. So many of us, of my friends and relatives as well, we um, ended up flying for a holiday. Um, and once we arrived at our travel destinations, we stick to a very strict uh, vegan diet or we refuse plastic bags or a separated waste very accurately, stuff like that. So we try to behave in a way that is beneficial or of, of what we believe that is beneficial to the climate. And um, most of us probably flew home with the very unpleasant feeling that flying for a holiday has not been very beneficial to the climate. But since every little bit counts, that is the moral narrative that is established, we have basically every reason to assume that we are doing the correct thing. 
But the truth is neither waste separation nor a vegan diet on itself nor paperbacks will stop climate change. What we actually need is a fundamentally new way to, for example, produce energy while guaranteeing energy security to the public. We need fundamentally new ways to mobility while ensuring that people and goods um, can still move around the planet, or at least in their countries. We need fundamentally new a, a fundamental, a fundamentally new diet while being able to feed the planet, stuff like that. So the key problem with the narrative, and that's why I believe it's it's we're using the wrong moral narrative, is um, first of all, the theoretical part. There is a substantial doubt from a philosophical, philosophical perspective that there is a straightforward normative argument for that. But even for people who don't agree with me that there is this straightforward normative argument, they should see that there is a second point. And that, that's the following. The, the, the following point is um, this moral narrative actually talks us into thinking that fighting climate change is a very private matter where we personally, on a very individual basis, can decide what we are willing to give up. So one of us will probably give up flying, another one will give up eating meat, another one will give up drinking cow's milk, stuff like that. But in fact, climate climate action is not a private matter at all. It's a it's a very public one. It needs our all of our collective action. It's sort of like when you were talking about what you were doing on holiday, it's like you were trying to practice a personal cap and trade approach versus the actual structural changes that we need that you mentioned to combat climate change. It's at least what I believe that many of us end up to, you know, this is, I personally, I barely fly anymore. I don't eat meat. I haven't eaten meat in like almost 14 years, 15 years. Um, I mostly live on a vegan diet, so I practice all of these things myself. But I believe that many people, as this moral narrative exists in that way, um, end up flying for a holiday and then restructuring their behavior in their in their travel destinations, and and then they fly home and believe they they have done something in the global fight against climate change. And that's not how it works. We need those structural um, uh, changes that are backed up by the society. So I think that leads in perfectly to my last question, which is outside of your academic work, I'm curious, how have you stepped out of your own comfort zone and turned your individual climate action into a public matter? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, well, I mean, I've um, defined promotional action as getting involved into the global fight against climate change and also pushing the political as well as the societal boundaries of climate action, of the collective climate action in, in, in specific. Um, and I have also, in, in my book, I've made a, a very strong case for researchers of all disciplines to actually focus all of their energy on providing new ways of thinking and acting and to go way that, that go way beyond 
those ways that we have today. So as a researcher, I spent more than, than four years challenging the status quo and providing a theory plus practical advice of which I hope that people will acknowledge it and get a feeling of hope and confidence um, to actually finally be able to make a meaningful difference. And then after my research, I worked some time as a political advisor on sustainability issues. And uh, most recently, I started working in research management. Um, and as part of that, I have the honor to work with a highly ambitious group of researchers, and I'll try to push them to their boundaries and beyond. But in the follow-up um, of, of my uh, thesis and my book, where I truly get um, into, into a public matter is um, that whenever I get the chance to actually talk about my book or get involved into discussions, I do so. And um, maybe speaking about more uh, of stepping a comfort zone or, or stepping out of my comfort zone, I think I personally incorporated this duty, like de dealing with the, this kind, these kinds of questions. I kind of incorporated that into my personality. This is simply what I believe is my duty, so I do it. It's not to me. It's not not like stepping out of my comfort zone. This is simply what I believe I should do. But stepping out of my comfort zone, like speaking about firsts like this has been a first when it comes to podcasts so basically today has been uh, quite a bit out of my comfort zone well we're so glad that we could at least help you step out of that and uh, so <laughs> happy to have the chance to discuss your work thank you so much Anna Luisa Leopold her book is climate change and individual moral duties plea for the promotion of a collective solution. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.